Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. It's good to be with all of you today. Uh, We are going to go ahead and finish the book of Colossians today. So verses 2 all the way down to 17. And um, so that's that's a chunk of, or 18, so about 17 verses of scripture. We're going to cover a lot today. And so I'm just going to jump right in. We're going to be talking about evangelism, prayer, and the family of God. Those are the three major themes that show up. Evangelism, prayer, and the family of God as Paul rounds out this letter that he wrote to the Colossian church. The Colossian church is located in modern day Turkey. Paul was writing while in prison in Rome. Roughly 60 to 62 AD is about when this was actually written. Paul did not plant this church. Rather, uh, one of Paul's companions of Hathras, he actually planted the church and Paul is now corresponding back and forth with the Colossian church. And so, um, yeah, he's instructed in who Jesus is, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, high Christology is the word for that, right? He's talked about what it is to be justified, how it is, what it means to be reconciled to God, what it is to be one of God's children, and what some of these things are supposed to start looking like both inside the church in our interpersonal relationships, as well as outside of the church with those who don't confess to walk with Jesus. And so he's covered a lot of theology in a very short letter. And so here he is giving his final words, some final instructions, and then he concludes his letter in a traditional uh, Greco-Roman format in sending his final greetings, acknowledging the company of men and women that he is with, serving alongside, and then acknowledging others in the church. So that's what we're going to do. Here we go. All right. Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So as Paul rounds out this letter, he says, I want you to continue steadfastly in prayer, remaining steadfast in it. And so Paul now talks about what it, or he addresses the kind of prayer in which he wants the church to be engaged in, that it's steadfast. And prayer, we'll deal with, prayer is not a, a one-way street, by the way, and we'll do a course on this soon, God willing, on listening prayer. But prayer is a two-way street. Prayer is not just saying things to God and asking God for God's will and so on. Prayer is also requires the, the, the Christian discipline of solitude, silence, discipline, sitting still and listening to the voice of the Spirit. And so that's, that's not what Paul's doing right here Rather, he's calling for this more active prayer as he begins to say, I want you guys to be praying for yourselves and for me in particular and my team that's in prison right now, okay? So I want you to continue steadfastly in prayer. So he's encouraging us to take advantage of our full rights as God's children to remain in communion with our Father. And to be quite honest, if you ask any of our Christian friends just in here today, what's the one thing in your Christian faith you tend to struggle with most? More often than not, it's, it's prayer. More often than not, it ends up being the, the most underutilized uh, gift or grace that we get in the Christian faith. And some of it's because we just don't know how to pray. Uh, sometimes we pray and nothing happens. Um, Sometimes we just grow bored in prayer and go, I 
don't even see the, the point of this. And that's not new or unique to us. Paul's admonishing the earliest Christians going, listen, brothers, sisters, you claim to follow Jesus. I want you to enjoy what Jesus purchased for you, namely communion with God. So I want you to stay steadfast in this. Stay engaged. Stay persevering in your prayer. That as Christians, you have this right to be in communion with God because of what Jesus purchased through his death and burial and resurrection. When it comes to prayer, you don't have to wait on a priest to show up. Jesus is your high priest. To pray, you don't have to wait on offering a sacrifice. Jesus was already your sacrifice. You don't have to wait on atonement. Jesus is your atonement. You don't have to wait till later when you get to heaven to be justified. You already are justified. All of these things are freely yours to remain in communion presently with God in the here and now. So as God's child, you have the ear of the king. You have the ear of the counselor. You have the ear of the savior. You have the ear of the creator at your disposal at any time. Continue steadfast in it. So when you pray, you don't have to face east. When you pray, you don't have to light incense. When you pray, you don't have to take your shoes off. When you pray, you don't have to make sure you gave enough money or started a nonprofit in a third world country. Like when you pray, you get to go before God in prayer, not because of your good works or make sure you get your act together. In fact, the whole point of the gospel was not get your act together. Then you can talk to God. The point of the gospel was you don't have your act together. Jesus did something in your place on your behalf, and now you can enjoy an ongoing, steadfast, abiding relationship with God. Isn't that great to go, all right, I don't have to act my act together. No matter what Satan says, my own flesh, my critics, my regrets from yesterday, nothing is allowed to stand between me and my reconciled relationship with the Father. It is finished. Thank God that that's true tomorrow. Like It's one thing to say it in here now. But it's another thing to go Monday after you, you blow it and go, can I go before God now? Am I, am I allowed to go steadfastly in the, before the throne of God or do I have to walk this off? And the gospel of grace would say, no, no, you get to keep talking to God now. In fact, keep doing it. That the reality is that you have God's attention because Psalm 17 verse eight is true of you today. That you are the apple of God's eye. Wow. Wow. You're the one Jesus loves. You're the one God moved heaven and earth to know. So you can continue steadfastly in prayer. So he's saying to be consistent in bringing our needs, our thoughts, our desires, our will, our frustration, our brokenness before God and plead for his wisdom his word and his will to go forward. And then he says this, so pray, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this is where this old discipline of Christian watching comes from, and we'll get into that on another day. But this word watchful, what does he mean? Are you like, can you pray with your eyes open? Am I supposed to like, what does he mean? Be watchful in prayer. 
The idea is this, is that the word watchful, was, it comes out of the, the Roman uh, prison system. Paul was in jail and he's chained to his, to his cell and he's got a guard standing right here who is instructed to watch Paul. He is under constant surveillance. Anytime Paul moves, the, the jailer knows what Paul's doing. Paul takes that guy's job description and says, I want you to do what this guy is doing. I want you to remain watchful in prayer, meaning I want you to remain expectant in prayer. Expectant. If you've been a Christian for longer than five minutes, you know what it's like to get bored in prayer and not really expect your prayer to do anything. In fact, one of my friends texted me from Birmingham this morning going, prayer literally does nothing, doesn't it? He used to be a pastor. And I was like, um, well, we're going to talk later today on the phone about that. But anyway, prayer does nothing. I don't expect it to do anything. Paul's saying you should expect God to move when you pray. If he gave you his son, if he gave you his spirit, if he gave you his word, if he gave you his people, if he brought you this far, you should expect God to move. You should expect God to take that thing that's wrecking your life, that's wrecking your home, that wrecks your marriage or wrecks your relationships or wrecks your, we should expect God to do something in our place. If he's willing to go to Calvary, certainly your daily concerns matter to God. So Paul says, I want you to pray expectantly. And I know this is hard. Listen, we are all carrying some heavy stuff in this room right now, presently. And as God's people, God's word admonishes us, keep expecting God to show up. He showed up in the past. Cling to that reality. Stay steadfast, watchful to go before God, knowing that he can hear you. Pray that way, that God can hear you. Pray like God actually raised Jesus from the dead. Pray like God who sent Pentecost can do it again. Pray like God can heal your family or heal your marriage or even heal your physical body. Pray that way. I know we can pray these things. It doesn't mean that God doesn't owe us anything. Pray, persist in confidence that God is not asleep at the wheel of your life. Prayer is not just a routine thing. And it's not just wishful thinking. And so Paul's encouraging the early Christians and God is encouraging us now. Church is the 11th hour. It's as hard as it's ever been. It's just that way. And Paul's saying, continue steadfast. Don't get distracted. Stay focused. Stay resolute. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Whatever you do, don't let up. Don't let up. I know it's hard. I know you're suffering. I know you're carrying it. I know it's, I know it's real. I know. And I want you to stay engaged. Stay focused. Stay persevering. You set your hand to the plow. Don't look back. Stay resolute. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Persevere. Remember what prayer is and continue in it. We cannot afford to go on autopilot and check out. 
So let's just do that for a minute. Can we just pray together as a church before we go any further? Like, I feel really heavy this morning. Do you, does anybody else feel heavy? Like, I don't know, like, don't look around at your neighbors, but half of you are crying right now. So let's, um, let's just do that right now. Can we just practice that? I'll just pray for us as a church body, and then we'll just jump back into the word and let's just lean into the spirit. Let's do this. Father, we come before you in Jesus' good and strong and holy and righteous and victorious name. The name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, we come before you now knowing that you are the God of the resurrection. You are the God of the beginning and the end. You have every day of our lives in the palm of your hand. And so Jesus, we ask you to send the spirit now. Work now, move now. Walk amongst us today. Would you heal us? Would you encourage us? Would you admonish us? We pray expectantly asking you to glorify yourself in showing yourself so good to us, your people. We know we don't deserve anything from you and you owe us nothing but you've been so good so far. You've been so faithful up to this hour. Would you continue to help us to see and savor your goodness in the here and now? We lift up our friends to you who don't know you, and we ask you to continue to work through us and bring the lost to salvation. We ask for our city that's filled with brokenness, violence, rage, poverty. Would you use us as your hands and feet to bless and serve the least of these? Would you give us your perspective, your wisdom, your eyes for your world? Would you help us keep our eyes fixed on you in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the setbacks? Jesus, we love you and we acknowledge you that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us, that you have not fallen asleep at the wheel of our lives and that you will see us through to the end. You have begun a good work and you will complete it. You determine the end from the beginning. You are sovereign, you are king, you are Lord, you are Christ, you are mercy, you are forgiveness, you are grace, you are gentleness and you are with us now. God, would you make us a praying people? Would you make us an expectant people? Would you revive the faith in so many of us that so struggles right now, that feels so dead, that feels so cold, that feels so lifeless, that feels so monotonous, that feels so routine? Would you, through the power of your spirit and the power of your gospel today, use us to fan the flame that's grown so dull in so many? Would you fan the flame and start a forest fire within each of us, that we would burn for you, that we would long for you, that we would look to you in all things. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Comfort your people now. In Jesus' name, we pray these things to you, God, our Father, through the Spirit. Amen. All right, so there's we prayed. <laughs> All right. Be watchful. 
with thanksgiving. Paul continually repeats this idea of gratitude. Say thank you, 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 say thank you. This is not something you have to conjure up and go, is there anything to be thankful for? Simply look around the room and look at the person next to you and you can end up saying thank you if you see a human for who they really are. Your wealth is in your relationships. You can say thank you. As you express your gratitude, Jesus draws near. Jesus draws near to the grateful. So Paul says, keep saying thank you. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm, I'm in prison. Okay, so now he says, so, so not only you guys continue in prayer, would you pray for us as we're in jail? And look at what he prays for. He doesn't pray. Pray God opens up this prison door. What does he pray? <laughs> He doesn't ask, God, get me out of this circumstance. Pray that God will open the door for the word of the gospel to go forth. That is, in the, believe, in the lives of those around me, in the lives of the prisoners and those, Paul's about to go before Caesar himself. He's going, I pray that God will enable me to, to continue to proclaim the gospel. I want the word of God to go forward and declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Look how I love that Paul goes, hey, would you not only pray that, that I get to preach the gospel, but would you pray specifically that I can articulate myself well and that it's just crystal clear? I want everybody in Rome to know why I'm in jail today. I will not bend my knee. I will not call Caesar my Lord. I will not water down the gospel. I will not say that Jesus is just one of many options and lump him in with the rest of the Roman pantheon. I will not deny the creator of heaven and earth. I will not deny the son of God who hung on a cross for me. I will open my mouth. I will make it crystal clear. I'll lose my head for this. If I'm living, I live for Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus. He's got my time, my energy, my relationships, my money. He's got my affections. He's got my attention. Would you make it, would you just pray that I make that crystal clear in my hour of death? He would call me to be faithful up to that hour and give me the strength to keep my eyes fixed. I'm a martyr. I'm here to deny myself. I'm not here to get it all for myself. Pray I can make this crystal clear that I've yielded my life to Jesus. I want the gospel to go forth, not just a philosophy and not just another idea and not just my own self. I want to make Jesus known. You're like, man, he's in the last hours of his life, in jail, 50 feet underground. And he's going, I don't really need God to open this prison door as much as I need God to open up the doors of the minds of the jailers around me. And as you know, if you've read Acts, Paul ends up leading some of these jailers to, to Jesus, <laughs> which is just unbelievable. It's like, if you get chained to Paul, that's just a, that's a rough go. It's like, well, <laughs> why are you in jail? Oh, well, I got nothing but time, I'll tell you. <laughs> anyway, Paul will not shut up or back down or deny Jesus. He keeps Jesus as his focus. So he wants to make it clear. And so brothers and sisters, we do no one, we don't do anyone any favors when we water down the gospel and muddy the water and make it, uh, well, yeah, make it less clear. So let's pray and strive for clarity as we articulate the person and work of Jesus. 
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, verse 5, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So when he talks about walking in wisdom toward outsiders, he's talking about those who are outside the body of Christ, outsiders. That is, those who don't know Jesus, those who don't confess Jesus, those who don't follow Jesus. He's saying, here's what I want you to do, church. Walk in wisdom toward them. Not judging them, not being rude to them, not being unkind to them, not picking on them, not arguing with them, not just fighting with them, not all. I need you to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Oh, and don't run away from those who don't know Jesus and don't confess Jesus and don't follow Jesus. He's not saying retreat and run away. But as you live your life, walk in wisdom. Meaning that your friends that don't follow Jesus, they don't, they don't think like you. They don't worship like you. They don't value what you value. And so as you're in the world, keep yourself distinct of it. Don't be of the world. But, so walk wisely. Think about the friendships and the relationships that you have as Christians, and then you go back amongst unbelievers and go, walk wisely. They don't always value what you value. They don't always treasure who you treasure. Be wise amongst the outsiders. Be wise amongst those who, who don't know Jesus. And I love this. Making the best use of the time, which literally means like to, to, to make up for or to steward the time. To, the word is literally to snatch up the time. Make the best usage of your time. Do you know if you lived 80 years, it's something like 29,200 days. Make the best use of them. And not just spending them on yourselves, but using them wisely toward those outside who might come to know Jesus. I just love that Paul's thinking about unbelievers while he's in jail. Make the best use of the time. I, um, I had a really crazy experience this week. And I thought, well, I guess this is, you know, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. That is preservative flavor, preserve this world, flavor this world, so you may know how to answer each person. I had this experience this week, and I was like, well, this is, this is as crazy as it gets. So I'll tell you the story. Um, last Sunday, I was preaching, and um, actually, I got to back up. Uh, gosh, this is hard. Let me just sit, show you a picture. Um, it's my friend Jacob. Do we have, is it really come up? Yeah, there's Jacob. He's the biggest dude I've ever met in my life. It doesn't look like that because obviously I'm huge and, you know, like in the photo. But Jacob is actually 6'8 and weighs 250 and he's a, a, he's a, he's a hoss. So that's my next door neighbor, Jacob. And um, we've slowly built a friendship. Um, lives literally next door at Christmas time. I mean, he gets out of his car, he's always like bumping, you know, Drake or something. Anyway, gets out of his car every day, real quiet, big guy, goes in his house every day, closes the door, and we barely talk. But at Christmas, uh, they're having a Christmas party and said, hey, why don't you guys stop over? And so I came over and we're going to the kitchen and he's making himself something to drink. He goes, all right, so what's your name, dude? I see you around. And uh, I was like, uh, my name's Alex. And he goes, cool, what are you, what are you into? It's like, uh, and it, without skipping a beat, I was like, I, I love Jesus. Janice just like, 
you just made that so weird. Like, and I don't, I was like, I'm just, you just kind of have to go ahead and go there. If you don't, like, it's just weird in like five years. And he's like, oh, oh, you're a pastor? Why didn't you mention Jesus at any point in this? So anyway, I was like, yeah, man, I love Jesus. See, I'm all about Jesus. He's like, <laughs> wow, I did not expect that. I was like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he's like, we should, we should probably talk about that someday. I was like, yeah, maybe we should. So last Saturday night, I'm cooking at like nine o'clock, wrapping up, and kids are in bed. Jana's editing photos, sitting on the couch. I felt this tug in my spirit. I don't, this is going to sound weird. Some of you who are less charismatic, and that's fine. Um, but I felt this tug, Alex, you need to go outside. It's like nine o'clock. I walk out the front door. There's Jacob going through a really hard time. Really hard time. Throwing his stuff in his car. This is over. And so I grabbed a copy of uh, a book I wrote called The Reckless Love of God and just wrote my phone number in the front. I was like, love you, dude. I don't know what you're going through, but here. And just slipped it in his, in his trunk. The next morning, I'm preaching here last Sunday, and he calls a few times while I'm preaching, obviously I didn't take the call, um, and go through our membership class. He texts a few times. I missed those texts there in a membership class, get in the car, and he's like, hey, dude, uh, just read Reckless Love of God. I'm sitting in a parking lot. Can we talk? I was like, yeah, sure, sure, man. So he comes to my house. We go get lunch. We spend a couple hours together. His name's Jacob, and he's just, un- he unloads his whole life story, and it is the wildest thing, and I won't go into it, but it is every bit of a wild life. So I walk through and we're listening and talking to him about his life, listening and talking about Jesus every once in a while. I said, you know what your name means, Jacob? You know where that comes from? He's like, no. I was like, oh, it's like, it's, he's a ragamuffin. You know, God's always introducing himself as God as Abraham and Isaac, these men of faith. And then the God of Jacob, he's the, he's the screw up. He's like, whoa. I was like, He's a guy that fights with God, and he told him about the wrestling match with the angel. He's like, that's amazing, you know? It's like, I think you could take him. Anyway, it's like, <laughs> anyway, so we're just, so we go through that. We get home. That night, he rings me up and goes, hey, you think maybe I can come over and we can, like, you mentioned Jesus a little today. You think we could talk a little about that tomorrow? I was like, yes. So he came over, and I ordered some sushi burritos from the cafe, and we sit down at my kitchen table, and we start just going through everything, Jesus and the gospel. And we cover the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. We're just sitting there and we're, we, get to, we get to Mark 7 where Jesus goes, it's not what goes into a man that makes you unclean. And when we got to that verse, he burst. He's like, you're telling me what doesn't, it's not what goes in makes a person unclean? Like, yeah, man, Xanax, Coke, Every addiction under the sun, that can't make you unclean before God. You're like, well, what makes a person unclean if it's not Coke? <laughs> Next verse. What comes out of the man's heart is what makes someone unclean. It's lust, it's greed, it's pride, it's adultery, it's violence, it's all these things. He's like, oh man, that's my heart. That's me. I was like, that's me too, man. That's right. He's like, what do we do? I was like, that's why Jesus came. He came to give us a new heart. He's like, he just lost it. He's like, you can't believe be serious. Like, we walk through the gospel. Tove walks in. Jacob's there bawling at the kitchen table. And she's like, how'd you make Jacob cry? It's like, it's like you're talking about Jesus, aren't you? I was like, yeah, we're talking about Jesus. You walk in wisdom. Listen, church, if God can save people in Rome 2,000 years ago or save someone in Jerusalem, he can save someone in Holler Lake on a Monday afternoon in 2019. It's unbelievable. And so the next day, he was set to move to Las Vegas. So they moved to Las Vegas 
Tuesday, meets Jesus Monday, moves to Vegas on Tuesday. So this Wednesday night, we're starting discipleship over Skype, and we're just like walking through the gospel. And you go, that is absolutely insane. It's like, who goes to Las Vegas to walk with Jesus? Well, apparently, a guy named Jacob. It's like most of the guys in the Bible end up kind of like that. I say that to tell you this story to encourage you, church, that God is still working that your unbelieving neighbors and friends, Jesus loves them and can track them down anytime. Yeah, amen. It's, it's unbelievable. I couldn't sleep all week. <laughs> Thinking, God, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And I had to tell most of my friends, I'm like, guys, this is unbelievable. Jacob knows Jesus. So, as Paul asked the early church to pray, I would ask you to pray for our friend Jacob. <laughs> Woo! All right, yeah, all right, man, it's just amazing. All right, so now we'll just do the traditional ending, Paul's final greeting. She's like, gosh, we got like 20 verses left. All right, let's go. Sorry, sorry. All right, Tychicus, that's a fun name. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a fellow minister and a faithful servant in the Lord. All right, so Tychicus means fortunate one. Uh, he was the one that was uh, actually the friend of Paul and he was entrusted with carrying both this letter, the Colossian letter, as well as uh, the letter to the Ephesian church. Uh, Tychicus is the one that actually is the, the, the mailman. His job is to encourage your hearts. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. Talk about a way to be spoken of. Beloved, faithful, servant, unbelievable. What a way to live your life. He'll tell you about all my activities. He's going to update you on everything I'm doing here in jail. So apparently Paul's not sitting still. He's actually busy at work, and clearly we know what Paul was probably up to. He's going to let you in on some of these conversations and let you know some about some of my friendships that I've developed here in jail. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts, that he might build up your hearts. That Paul, Paul does this thing that he did back in the Colossians 2 where he talks about the being face-to-face. -face. He's like, I want you to know how we're doing. This isn't just relaying theology, doctrine, letters. I want you to know how we are, like how we're, how we're doing. He's gonna tell you, okay? And then he says, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Do you guys remember where Onesimus comes from? The book of Philemon, the runaway slave. His name means useful one. He was not very useful when he ran away, which was funny. And then Paul ends up using his name later. He's become useful to me, which is funny. But Onesimus runs away, most likely robbed uh, Philemon before he left to finance his journey to get away from Philemon. And while running away from his master, who did he meet? Paul. Paul led Onesimus to Jesus, sends him back. Okay, so Onesimus at this point, though, is visiting with Paul in prison, and he reminds Onesimus indirectly, and it reminds the church directly, Onesimus is not just a slave, he's one of you. He's one of you. They will tell you everything that's taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
So Aristarchus, this was a, a, a Jewish man that was in the synagogue in Thessalonica uh, in AD 50. Paul shows up, in, and you can read about this in the book of Acts as well. Paul shows up, starts preaching in a synagogue. Aristarchus was one of the guys in the synagogue, a man who believed the Old Testament. Here's Paul preach Jesus as the fulfillment reve- being revealed, and Aristarchus begins to follow Jesus. So he, uh, the church there in Thessalonica then sent Aristarchus out to join Paul's missionary team all throughout Greece and Asia Minor and down into Judea. So here he is, Aristarchus is now imprisoned with Paul in Rome. And so like Paul, he never met the Colossian church face to face, but he wanted to send his greetings. There's something really sacred about that. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, So if you read the book of Acts, you know Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's one of Paul's traveling companions. Barnabas has a cousin named Mark. This is not the gospel writer, Mark. Um, So Barnabas was obviously well-known since he could reference him by first name from Rome. Barnabas' cousin, if if Mark shows up, we've got some instructions. It's like, well, what would hinder him getting from, from Roman and into the to the Colossian church, severe persecution. And uh, we don't have any record whether or not Mark actually made it. In Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. So now we have this Jesus who is called Justice. It's the only thing that we don't know anything about him. He's just, he's a Jewish convert. Paul now mentions three Jews, the men of the circumcision, circumcision, these guys, I've got three guys who grew up in the synagogue, and they have been a great comfort to me. If you underline anything in that verse, make sure you underline the word comfort. Paul is in the least comfortable place and position of his life, and where is he finding comfort? In his relationships with those brothers around him. So he mentions these three, and I love this, that Paul calls them fellow workers. These are the only men of the circumcision. They're, they're my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort. That is, so Paul's saying, I'm not, it's not about just me. Like when Paul opens a letter, he always opens it in community. When he ends the letter, he always ends it in community. He's always writing in community that he's not a one-man show, and it's not a one-woman show, but he's saying, this is a fellow workers. It's an all-hands-on-deck thing. It's the body of Christ. So he pulls these together. And then we have Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. And I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So Epaphras, he is the one that's most likely the person who actually planted the church in Colossae. And he has now traveled from Colossae all the way to Rome. And he's spending time with Paul in jail. And Paul's saying, hey, your pastor loves you. He's on the other side of the earth right now visiting me. But he loves you. And he's working hard on your behalf, praying for you. 
that you'd stand firm, that you'd stand mature, that you'd be steadfast, that you'd be resolute, that you wouldn't crumble under temptation, that you wouldn't crumble under persecution, that you wouldn't back down, that you'd keep pushing forward. He's worked hard for you, and he wants you to continue to grow in maturity. We'll talk about these other cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, uh, most likely uh, in the next couple of weeks. Most likely it's going to be on Easter. So, um, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. This is Luke, the doc, Dr. Luke, uh, who uh, wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. He's now there visiting Paul in jail. Look how tight-knit all these guys are. Isn't this unbelievable? Paul's got a deep bench, and he's in jail. It's amazing. And then Demas, he, he greets you as well. Uh, Demas sends his greetings. Demas is, this is the same Demas that Paul mentions later when he talks to Timothy where he says, uh, Demas abandoned us. And he says, uh, he, quote, fell in love with this present world. So on this day, he was rolling with Paul, but there came a time later where Demas did not. Then we have, give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea, which is a city just a couple miles away, and to Nympha, and the church in her house. Who? A woman. Nympha has opened up her home and is pastoring people in her house. Say hey to her. All right. I'd give anything to go to her house and go to church today. I'm in jail. Bless her. Encourage her. Build her up. Wow. She knows she can lose her head for the gospel too? All right. Yeah. It's, a, it's like give her my Greetings, make sure she's encouraged in what she's doing. And when this letter's been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul's obviously written another letter to Laodicea. And so he's saying, once you guys read each other, I want you to swap these letters. I want you to get all the doctrine you can out of them. Don't just hone in on one thing I said in this church and this here. I want, I, I want you to really get what I have to say to both of you. This is why we don't just camp out and read letters of Paul. We also read the New Testament and the Old Testament. We read all of the scripture. Okay. Say to Archippus, this is the guy that's also mentioned in the book of Philemon. In verse 2, he's called a fellow soldier. Say to Archippus, he's in the middle of the, the church. Tell him, and I love that he says it publicly. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. So like, all right, call this guy out. Which is pretty awesome. <laughs> Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry of what God's entrusted you to do. We don't know what God gifted Archippus to do, whether he was a, a, a church planter or a local pastor, or maybe he was a counselor, or maybe he preached, or maybe he, whatever his, his responsibility was in the body of Christ. We don't know what that was, but Paul says, tell him to fulfill his ministry. Everybody in that room knows that guy's called to do X. Make sure he follows through. Make sure he follows through. Don't let him sit out. Make sure he follows through. Fulfill your ministry. I don't know if that strikes any of you today, wherever you might be in your walk with Jesus and what he might have called you to do when you were 16 or 20 or 25 or wherever in life, but perhaps it might be worth just thinking about, God, I know you put a call on my life. What's he called you to do? He might have called some of you into the ministry. Uh, 
whether that's here in Seattle or maybe that's in another country or another city. I don't know. But Paul is concerned about the brothers and sisters fulfilling their ministries and whatever roles those look like. And then he wraps up with this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So traditionally, Paul would dictate his letter to an amanuensis. They, they, they write down the letter. Then at the very end, Paul would say, okay, now I'll take the pen. I'm going to write. I'm going to put my signature on it. Paul does this often. I'm writing this with my own hand. And then he says, so remember my chains. So he has his hands in handcuffs. And he's writing this last sentence. Please remember that the hands that are writing this are chained up right now. Don't forget. Please don't forget about me. They're trying to exterminate the gospel that's turning the entire empire upside down. Don't forget about me. What all this is costing. Don't forget that. Grace to you. Then he just ends the letter with, may God have his unyielding, relentless mercy and favor pour out on you. Isn't that unbelievable? He just ends the letter with all of this gospel and acknowledging all these people and all this stuff he's going through. And he goes, and may God have grace on you. (laughs) And that's what will keep you to the end.